Part One, Chapter Two of the Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part One, Chapter Two: Home Life Continued. Four, the Nightingales had as many friends without as within the family circle. Their two homes brought them in touch with county society alike in Derbyshire and in Hampshire, and acquaintanceships made in London were often ripened in the country, or vice versa. In Derbyshire, their friends included the Struts and Richard Monckton Milnes, who afterwards took a cordial interest in the Nightingale Fund. In London, Florence and her sister went out a great deal and saw all that was interesting to well-educated young persons. A letter from Florence to one of her aunts shows her occupied in politics, in literature, in astronomy, with something perhaps of the note of a blue, yet with her mind already set on a purpose in life. Quote, Miss F. Nightingale to Miss Julia Smith, June twentieth, 1843 a cold east wind forty-one days of rain in the last month as our newspaper informs us to prove that forty-three is worse than any preceding year do rest the world very pleasant people looking up in the prospect of peels giving them free trade and all radical measures in the course of one or two years carlyle's new past and present a beautiful book there are bits about work which how i should like to read with you Quote, blessed is he who has found his work let him ask no other blessedness he has a work a life purpose he has found it and will follow it sir j graham is going to be obliged to give up his factory's education bill for this year oh ye bigoted dissenters but i am going to hold my tongue and not meddle with politics or talk about things which i don't understand for i tremble already in anticipation and proceed at once to facts the two things we have done in london this year the most striking things are seeing buffet in claremont the blind painter you have seen him so i need not decant on his entire difference from anybody else and going under mr bethune to st james south's at kensington where we were from ten o'clock till three o'clock the next morning mr bethune is certainly the most good-natured man in ancient or modern history you will fancy the first going out upon the lawn on that most beautiful of nights with the immense fellow slung in his frame like a great steam-engine and working as easily and the mountains of the moon striking out like bright points in the sky and the little stars resolving themselves into double and even quadruple stars those dialogues of galileo are so beautiful mr bethune lent them to us to read in the real old first edition at embley the nightingale saw something of the palmerstons and the ashburtons with Miss Louisa Stuart Mackenzie, who afterwards became the second wife of the second Lord Ashburton, Florence formed a friendship which was one of the solaces and supports of her life at this time. Other friends who played a yet larger part in her life were Mr. and Mrs. Bracebridge of Atherston near Coventry. Florence sketches the character of some of her friends in a letter to her cousin Hilary, April 1846. Quote, 
Mrs. Keith, Miss Dutton, and Louisa Mackenzie may be shortly described as the respective representatives of the soul, the mind, and the heart. The first has one's whole worship, the second one's greatest admiration, and the third one's most lively interest. Mrs. Bracebridge may be described as all three, the human trinity in one, and never do I see her without feeling that she is eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Many a plan which disappointment has thinned off into a phantom in my mind takes form and shape and fair reality when touched by her ethereal spear, for there is an ethereal spear for good as well as for evil." Dr. Richard Dawes, Dean of Hereford, who was an educational reformer, and Dr. Fowler of Salisbury, who anticipated the open-air treatment and was otherwise a man of marked originality, were among those whose friendship she valued. If Florence Nightingale was to find her home life empty and unprofitable, it was not for lack of congenial friends. She saw much, too, of general society, and Embley was often the scene of entertaining. We get a glimpse of its parties from an invitation which Mr. Nightingale sent to Miss Clark, October 1843, to bring her friend Leopold von Rank with her on a visit. Quote, Pray send him a sly line, to the effect that he will find notabilities here on the 24th, to wit, the Speaker, Charles Lefebvre, the ex-foreign secretary, Palmerston, the Catholic Weld, future owner of Lulworth and nephew of the cardinal of that ilk, and mayhap a queen's equerry or two, a baron of the exchequer, Rolfe, an inspector, or a rather engineering architect of the new prisons, and a couple of baronets. He should think well on this. Yours quizzically, but faithfully, W.E.N. Papa is quizzing the baronets, added Florence, who are not wise ones. Provided you come, I care for nobody, no, not I, and shall be quite satisfied. As Monsieur de Something said to the stale, quote, Nous irons à nous deux de l'esprit pour quarante, vous pour quatre et moi pour zéro. End quote. There were return invitations to great houses, and occasionally Florence retails their gossip or her own reflections for the benefit of cousins or aunts. Quote, to Miss Hilary Bonhomme Carter, eighteen forty-five or early forty-six. What is the secret of Lady Joycelyn's sublime placidity? I never saw anything so lovely as she is, and she has lived four and twenty years of more excitement, I suppose, than ever fell to anybody's lot but an actress, all the young peerage having proposed to her. What gives her such a fullness of life now, and makes her find enough in herself? It is not that she talks to Lord Palmerston or Lord Joycelyn, for she never does, and though she is very fond of her baby, she told me herself she did not care to play with it. Perhaps you will say it is want of earnestness, but good gracious, my dear, if earnestness breaks one's heart, who is fulfilling most the creation's end? She who is breaking her heart, or this woman who has kept her serenity in the midst of excitement, and her simplicity in unbounded admiration? The Palmerstons are certainly the most good-natured people under the stars to their guests. 
we have been since to sir william heathcote's to meet the ashburtons i wish you had been there for the sake of the pictures and also for the sake of the artistical dinner which even i became aware was such a dinner and such plate as has seldom blessed my housekeeping eyes the palmerstons too have had down all their pictures from london such a rembrandt pilate washing his hands lord ashburton does not look much like a settler of a boundary question she is an american and we swore eternal friendship upon boston i having you know much curious information to give her upon that city and its inhabitants she has a raspberry tart of diamonds upon her forehead worth seeing then mesmerism and when we parted we had got up so high into vestiges that i could not get down again and was obliged to go off as an angel the ashburtons were the only people asked to meet the queen of strathfield say of her society it was the most entire crash ever heard of and the not asking the palmerstons considered almost a personal insult but they say the old duke now cares for nothing but flattery and asks nobody but masters of hands he almost ill-treated the speaker after dinner they all stood at ease about the drawing-room and behaved like so many soldiers on parade the queen did her very best to enliven the gloom but was at last overpowered by numbers gagged and her hands tied the only amusement was seeing albert taught to miss at billiards five florence's remark that she would only provide the zero of esprit to miss clark's quatre is by no means to be taken literally she was attractive and she attracted both men and women she talked well and often laid herself out to interest her companions and sometimes confounded them with learning in eighteen forty four julia ward howard was in england with her husband dr howe and they visited the nightingales at embley florence writes mrs howe in her reminiscences quote, was rather elegant than beautiful she was tall and graceful of figure her countenance mobile and expressive her conversation most interesting a reminiscence of a later date records an encounter with sir henry de la beche the pioneer of the geological map of england warrington smythe and sir henry dined at mr nightingale's and florence sat between them Quote, she began by drawing sir henry out on geology and charmed him by the boldness and breadth of her views which were not common then she accidentally proceeded into regions of latin and greek and then our geologist had to get out of it she was fresh from egypt and began talking with w smythe about the inscriptions etc where he thought he could do pretty well but when she began quoting lepsius which she had been studying in the original he was in the same case as sir henry when the ladies left the room sir henry said to smythe a capital young lady that if she hadn't floored me with her latin and greek i have been dowagering out with papa wrote florence to miss clark march eighteen forty three in the big coach to a formal dinner party where however mr gerald noel and i were very thick he inquiring tenderly after you and your whereabouts here inserted is a drawing of florence nightingale as a girl about eighteen forty five from a drawing by miss hilary bonham carter of miss nightingale's personal appearance in early womanhood there are pen pictures by very competent hands 
lady lovelace in her verses entitled a portrait taken from life emphasizes a certain spiritual aloofness in her friend Quote, i saw her pass and pause to think she moves as one on whom to gaze with calm and holy thoughts that link the soul to god in prayer and praise she walks as if on heaven's brink unscathed through life's entangled maze i heard her soft and silver voice take part in songs of harmony well framed to gladden and rejoice whilst her ethereal melody still kept my soul in wavering choice twixt smiles and tears of ecstasy i deem her fair yes very fair yet some there are who pass her by unmoved by all the graces there her face doth raise no burning sigh nor hath her slender form the glare which strikes and rivets every eye her grave but large and lucid eye unites a boundless depth of feeling with truth's own bright transparency her singleness of heart revealing but still her spirit's history from light and curious gaze concealing mrs gaskell's picture in prose gives some lighter touches quote, she is tall very straight and willowy in figure thick and shortish rich brown hair very delicate complexion gray eyes which are generally pensive and drooping but when they choose can be the merriest eyes i ever saw and perfect teeth making her smile the sweetest i ever saw put a long piece of soft net and tie it round this beautifully shaped head so as to form a soft white framework for the full oval of her face for she had a toothache and so wore this little piece of drapery and dress her up in black silk high up to the long white round throat and with a black shawl on and you may get near an idea of her perfect grace and lovely appearance she is so like a saint End quote she dressed becomingly but had a saint's carelessness in such things somewhat to her elder sister's despair make flo wear her white silk frock to-night she wrote on one occasion to her mother many years later when stores and comforts were being sent out to the east under cover to the lady-in-chief lady verney insinuated one little gown for flo and who will not love her for it when in eighteen forty nine she started to winter in the east her mother says i quote again from mrs gaskell they equipped her en princesse and when she came back she had little besides the clothes she had on she had given away her linen etc right and left to those who wanted it quote. six those who have social gifts often find sufficient happiness in their exercise but florence though she sometimes enjoyed the intercourse of intellectual society reproached herself all the while for doing so she felt increasingly that she had other gifts which were more properly hers and that the life of society was a distraction into the wrong path she found even the london season more congenial than the life of the hospitable country house people talk of london gaieties she wrote to miss nicholson aunt hannah but there you can at least have your mornings to yourself to me the country is the place of row since we came home in september how long do you think we can have been alone not one fortnight a country house is the real place for dissipation 
sometimes i think that everybody is hard upon me that to be forever expected to be looking merry and saying something lively is more than can be asked mornings noons and nights End quote. when she was alone with her parents and her sister she hardly found the life at home more satisfying this was partly as she confessed in many a page of self-examination the result of her own shortcomings Ask me, she wrote to Aunt Hannah, to do something for your sake, something difficult, and you will see that I shall do it regularly, which is for me the most difficult thing of all. End quote. Let those who reproach themselves for a desultoriness, seemingly incurable, take heart again from the example of Florence Nightingale. No self-reproach recurs more often in her private outpourings at this time than that of irregularity and even sloth. She found it difficult to rise early in the morning. She prayed and wrestled to be delivered from desultory thoughts, from idle dreaming, from scrappiness in unselfish work. She wrestled and she won. When her capacities had found full scope in congenial work, nothing was more fixed and noteworthy in her life and work than regularity, precision, method, persistence. But in part, the failings with which she reproached herself were the fault of her circumstances. The fact of the two country homes militated against steady work in either. Her parents were not, indeed, careless or thoughtless beyond others in their station, but rather the reverse. Mr. Nightingale was a careful landlord and zealous in country business, and his wife took some interest, as I have already said, in village schools and charities. But to Florence's parents, these things were rather graces rightly incidental to their station than the main business of life. Florence's more eager temperament and larger capacity craved for greater consistency in the energies of life. She was expected to play the part of Lady Bountiful one day, and to be equally ready to play that of Lady Graceful the next. A friend who visited at Leah Hurst recalls how Florence would often be missing in the evening, and on search being made she would be found in the village, sitting by the bedside of some sick person, and saying she could not sit down to a grand seven o'clock dinner while this was going on. But by the time she had schooled herself to any regularity of work at Leah Hurst, the hour had come for moving to Embley. By the time she had settled down to work amongst her poor at Embley, the hour of the London season had struck. I should be very glad, she wrote to her aunt from Embley, if I could have been left here when they went to London, as there is so much to be done, but as that would not be heard of, London is really my place to rest. The companionship which Florence had at home was sometimes wearisome to her. The sisters, as we have already seen, were not in full sympathy. The parents were not unintellectual persons, but again much the reverse. Mrs. Nightingale was a woman of bright intelligence and of much social charm. Mr. Nightingale was a highly intellectual man, sensitive, too, and refined. He shot and hunted, but he was not ardently devoted to either sport, and was interested in many things, perhaps in too many, and yet not enough in any. Florence Nightingale, in her later years, used sometimes to describe with a twinkle of affectionate humor of a morning in her home life as a girl. Mama, we may suppose, was busy with housekeeping cares. Papa was very fond of reading aloud, and in order to interest his daughters, would take them through the whole of the times, with many a comment, no doubt, by the way. Now, for Parth, Miss Nightingale used to say, 
Quote, the morning's reading did not matter. She went on with her drawing. But for me, who had no such cover, the thing was boring to desperation. To be read aloud to, she wrote, is the most miserable exercise of the human intellect. Or rather, is it any exercise at all? It is like lying on one's back with one's hands tied and having liquid poured down one's throat. Worse than that, because suffocation would immediately ensue and put a stop to this operation, but no suffocation would stop the other. As the younger daughter of a busily efficient mother, Florence was not often entrusted with household duties, but on one occasion, at any rate, she was left in command, and that during the important season of jam making. My reign is now over, she wrote to her cousin Hilary, who was an art student. December 1845, quote, Angels and ministers of grace defend me from another, though I cannot but view my fifty-six pots with the proud satisfaction of an artist, my head a little on one side, inspecting the happy effect of my works with more feeling of the beautiful than Parth ever had in hers, end quote and even housekeeping brought obstinate questionings with it to Florence. She describes a bout of it on another occasion in a letter to Madame Mall, July 1847. Quote, I am up to my chin in linen and glass, and I am very fond of housekeeping. In this too highly educated, too little active age, it, at least, is a practical application of our theories to something, and yet in the middle of my lists, my green lists, brown lists, red lists, of all my instruments of the ornamental and culinary accomplishments, which I cannot even divine the use of, I cannot help asking in my head, can reasonable people want all this? Is all that china, linen, glass necessary to make man a progressive animal? Is it even good political economy? Query, for good, read atheistical political economy. To invent once in order to supply employment? Or ought not in these times all expenditure to be reproductive? And a proper stupid answer you'll get, says the best Versailles service. So go and do your accounts. There is one of us cracked. End quote. 7. Florence was an affectionate and dutiful daughter. She obeyed and yielded for many years. She strove hard to think that her duty lay at home, and that the trivial round and common task would furnish all that she had any right, before God or man, to ask. But as the sense of a vocation elsewhere strengthened and deepened in her mind, she may well have thought that, as her elder sister was contented to stay at home, a life of activity outside might for the other daughter not be inconsistent with affection for her parents. She had, indeed, intellectual interests of her own. She read a great deal in English, French, German, in devotional works, in poetry, history, philosophy, and what she read she marked and inwardly digested. A copy, unfortunately not complete, is preserved of the first edition of Browning's Paracelsus, which she annotated with remarks, paraphrases, and illustrative cases as she read. The first scene of the poem, Paracelsus Aspires, contains many a passage which aroused a sympathetic echo in her heart. A keynote is struck early. Pursuing an aim not to be found in life, is her comment, is its true misery. Then she kept commonplace books, in which, under heads alphabetically arranged, such as Age of Reason, Bigotry, Creeds, Death, education, and so forth, she copied out passages which struck her. 
she was accumulating stores of information and reflection in some remarks upon la cordiere in one of her notebooks i find this passage copied out quote, i desire for a considerable time only to lead a life of obscurity and toil for the purpose of allowing whatever i may have received of god to ripen and turning it some day to the glory of his name nowadays people are too much in a hurry both to produce and consume themselves it is only in retirement in silence in meditation that are formed the men who are called to exercise an influence on society for her own part as her powers of reflection were strengthened so did her sense of a vocation become more insistent with every year in some autobiographical notes miss nightingale records may seventh eighteen fifty two as the date at which she was conscious of quote, a call from god to be a savior end quote but the thought of devoting herself to be a nurse came much earlier mrs julia ward howe in the reminiscences quoted above describes how during the visit of herself and her husband to embley in eighteen forty four florence had taken dr howe aside and asked him this question if i should determine to study nursing and to devote my life to that profession do you think it would be a dreadful thing dr howe it will be remembered was of wide repute as a philanthropist and miss nightingale thought much of his opinion it was favorable to her wish not a dreadful thing at all he replied i think it would be a very good thing my idea of heaven she wrote a little time afterwards is when my dear aunt hannah and i and my boy shore and all of us shall be together nursing the sick people who are left behind and giving each other sympathies besides and our saviour in the midst of us giving us strength End quote but meanwhile she hoped to realize some little peace of the heaven on earth she pursued other inquiries laid her plans kept her own counsel and then made a first bid for freedom the nature of her plans the nipping of them in the bud by maternal frost and her following dejection are told in a letter to her cousin hilary december eleventh eighteen forty five Quote, well my dearest i am not yet come to the great thing i wanted to say i have always found that there was so much truth in the suggestion that you must dig for hidden treasures in silence or you will not find it and so i dug after my poor little plan in silence even from you it was to go to be a nurse at salisbury hospital for these few months to learn the prax and then to come home and make such wondrous intimacies at west wellow under the shelter of a rhubarb powder and a dressed leg let alone that no one could ever say to me again your health will not stand this or that i saw a poor woman die before my eyes this summer because there was no one but fools to sit up with her who poisoned her as much as if they had given her arsenic and then i had such a fine plan for those dreaded latter days which i have never dreaded if i should outlive my immediate ties of taking a small house in west wellow well i did not like much talking about it but i thought something like a protestant sisterhood without vows for women of educated feelings might be established but there have been difficulties about my very first step which terrified mamma i do not mean the physically revolting parts of a hospital but things about the surgeons and nurses which you may guess even mrs fowler threw cold water upon it and nothing will be done this year at all events and i do not believe ever 
and no advantage that i see comes of my living on excepting that one becomes less and less of a young lady every year which is only a negative one you will laugh dear at the whole plan i dare say but no one but the mother of it knows how precious an infant idea becomes nor how the soul dies between the destruction of one and the taking up of another i shall never do anything and am worse than dust and nothing i wonder if our saviour were to walk the earth again and i were to go to him and ask whether he would send me back to live this life again which crushes me into vanity and deceit oh for some strong thing to sweep this loathsome life into the past and so ended for the time the dash of the caged bird for liberty End of Part 1, Chapter 2